Good morning, everyone. Welcome back. This is our last Bible study of 2019. Oh, I know. I heard that. I heard that. We are going to be off for the next few weeks, but I want to make sure that you know that we will be back on January 8th. January 8th. There are bookmarks that look the same color as this, the fall bookmarks. They're on stacks on the tables on your way out. So grab one so you can confirm that January 8th is when we will be back here together in the chapel. And we will send an email out to you that says all of this and sends the bookmark as a PDF so you can have that digitally. But just grab one on your way out and make a note that we'll be off for the next few weeks. And I hope that you all have a wonderful Christmas and expect to see you at some point. Come join us. Um, we just confirmed the very last of our readers for our lessons in our Christmas lessons and carols service. That's going to be in two Sundays. The Sunday before Christmas, we do lessons and carols here in the evening, candlelit, and it's beautiful. And we started this last year and we wanted to invite city leaders to be readers with us. And so this year I'm very excited, Eric Johnson, our mayor is gonna be one of our readers, um, and we'll have other people that you will recognize for sure. And so if you are not a member of St. Michael, make a note that December 22nd at 5.30 here in the church, we'd love to see you again. It's a totally choral service, no Eucharist, just that classic British lessons and carols, it's good stuff. And if you were with us at 11 o'clock this past Sunday, you would have experienced Advent lessons and carols, which goes all the way through the Annunciation when Gabriel appears to Mary, but does not go all the way to the birth because the birth is Christmas. And so different music, different carols, different lessons, it's good stuff. So join us for that if you're able. And let me see, lastly, well, I do want to make a note. Um, some of you, I think you, if you are a part of St. Michael, you got this in your email, but for those of you who may not have received that email, Susan Kalin, who'd been my assistant for many years here, retired in November. And Meredith Rose, who is at the back door today, has taken her place. And Susan was great. She worked here for a number of months after deciding to retire so that we could find a replacement so that there wasn't a big gap. And so once we found Meredith, she finished up in November and Meredith is now with us. And so if you get an email from Meredith Rose, that's who that is. It's not spam. It is, she is a lovely person. Meet her on the way out um, and get to know her. So let's see. Lastly, this is the last time we're meeting in 2019. So a reminder to go say hi to someone you don't know. This is one of those spaces where we don't get a chance to really talk to each other because this is kind of out of necessity didactic in its style. But I've heard from some people that it was so nice to be greeted by a stranger. I've also heard from others that they come and they sit by themselves and they don't get to talk to anybody because they don't know anybody. So I know, and we're gonna talk about how hospitable Abraham was. And so I want us to be inspired by his hospitality because no one in here is too busy to not say hi to someone before you leave. And so spread a little bit of that love and people will feel it. Let's open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for Bible study this fall that has brought us together and helped us learn more about you. May we be inspired in this Advent season to help change our lives, to grow closer to you, and to help spread your love here on earth. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
So we have a lot this week, so let's go ahead and jump in. First off, we are going to be talking about Abraham and Sarah mostly this week or today. And so I like one question that I got last week, which is, can you briefly touch on how multiple world religions claim Abraham as their own? So I'm going to assume that that question is really inclusive of Islam. So I think it's relatively straightforward how the Jews claim Abraham, right? Yes. Okay, if not, I have not been very good this fall. Okay, so Jews and Abraham, we got that. So obviously Christians come out of that branch of Judaism, Jesus being the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies as the Messiah. So we obviously, through the Jewish tradition, root ourselves to Abraham. Now, we are going to talk a little bit today about Abraham's two sons. Presumably, Abraham had more children than that. We don't really know. But we know Abraham had at least two sons, Ishmael the first, and then Isaac. Isaac is the son through which God will work the covenant. We believe that even though Ishmael was the firstborn, Isaac is the one through which the covenant will be worked that will then ultimately bring us Jesus. We can talk a little bit. We will for sure talk in the spring a lot more about this than we did in the fall. But one of the recurring loops of storytelling in the Jewish tradition is that God never uses the person you may expect. God always uses the messy person, the second son, or the 11th son, or you name it. God does not use the people that the world might tap as being the people God should use. And the story of Ishmael and Isaac is no different. By any worldly standard, Ishmael should have been the heir. And it was Ishmael who should have been the person who bore the covenant and the promise that God made to Abraham forward. And God said no. God used the second son, Isaac, to do that. Now, you, may be, you might argue that because Isaac is Sarah's biological son, whereas Ishmael is Hagar's biological son, it kind of makes sense, except that's putting our values on that story. That would not be the value of the day. Ishmael's the first son, period. It doesn't matter who his mother was. It matters that his father was Abraham. That's it. So we have to be careful not to understand these stories through our own set of values. I mean, it's okay to interpret them through our own values, but we should at least start from understanding their historic context in time. Ishmael was the rightful heir based on their social structure, period. And yet God says no. So then what happens to Ishmael? We will see in chapters 17 and 18 today, that God promises to take care of Ishmael. And by taking care of Ishmael, God will bless him, give him lots of descendants, make him the father of a great nation. And so Abraham is calmed. His worries are, are a little, uh, are put at ease because God promises to take care of his son Ishmael. That promise is maintained for centuries and centuries by the people who will become functionally the Arab people. I think I said this last week, Israelites are Semitic. The Semitic peoples are a particular kind of culture 
Arabs are another kind of culture. Phoenicians, which you would, we would think of as kind of the Mediterranean people, that's kind of Italy, Greece, Turkey, Lebanon, those people. They're all different groups. Then you've got North African and Egyptian and on and on and on. Semites are not Arabs. Hagar was also not Arab, but Ishmael becomes the father of what we could kind of, and I say kind of because none of this is black and white and perfect, but we can kind of say Ishmael is the father of the Arab peoples. And so hundreds and hundreds of years later, one of their people, Muhammad, becomes a prophet, receives the Quran, and creates this nation that is godly in the sense that it roots itself to Ishmael and to Abraham. Does that make sense? Nobody else claims Abraham. Well, there are sects and things like that of small groups that claim Abraham. Little things, little things, they're not that little. Um, groups like, say, Mormons would certainly root themselves to Abraham. Mormons would say they're Christian. Many traditional Christians would say they're not. Um, so we can have that discussion at a different time. Um, so there are groups like that that would also root themselves to Abraham. But when it comes to the most macro umbrellas we can create in world religions, it's really Judaism, Christianity, and Islam that root themselves to Abraham. Hinduism and Buddhism, it's totally different. That's Eastern. Any questions about that before we go on? Great. All right, chapter 17, open it up. We're gonna start at the very beginning. As you're turning to chapter 17, one big note for today is that we are going to be talking about identity. Everything that we're going to be discussing today roots itself in identity. Identity in names, identity in place, identity in hereditary. So just keep that in your mind as we look forward. Chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. So names matter here. We have noted multiple times that Abraham and Sarah started off as Abram and Sarai. So let's talk just a minute about Abraham. Abraham gets his name change moment here. Sarah's name change moment comes soon, but not yet. Abraham goes from Abram to Abraham. Now, I think you can see that the change is not that dramatic. It's not like we see other name changes in the Bible, but... Abram and Abraham have a slight tweak difference that if you know the Hebrew, you might pick up on. Abram is based on two words, Abba, father, and Ram, which means exalted. So Abram means exalted father. Abraham is slightly different. You still get that root, Abba, father, but then you get the name Heman, which is actually horde or big group. So Abraham goes from exalted father, that's nice, to father 
of a lot of people. There's a difference there. It's subtle. But at this point, Abraham's name change is meant to foreshadow he will have the son that will create his nation. Now, remember, he's already had a son, but he's going to have the son that God will use to create his nation. Now, I think obviously we have to remember this in context. Who is writing this story? The Jewish people. They are in exile. What are they most concerned about? Well, they're human, so they are most concerned about themselves. That is the answer. And so they are very concerned about themselves. They are telling their story. So their story is being told in a very particular way. At the time of the exile, it is, there is no question that Ishmael's descendants would have numbered more greatly than Isaac's descendants. But the people writing the story are not Ishmael's descendants. They are Isaac's. And so they will effectively sweep Ishmael away and focus entirely on Isaac, even though demonstrably Ishmael's nation, when it comes to total descendants, was bigger at that time of the writing. It's still bigger, by the way. But still, at the time of the writing, they were larger, but that's not their concern because they are Jews, and so they're rooting themselves in Isaac. So being the father of a lot was directly tied to be, being the father of Isaac. Another little note here, if you look at verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now, if, you've been, if you read closely, you might notice God Almighty, that's a new name for God. We've not seen that name yet. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, I am God Almighty. You may be familiar. You know what? I have forgotten to write up the different sections of, of the study today. So back up with me real fast. I should have done this when we started. I always like to know where I'm going. You know, if a class just kind of goes off and I don't know exactly where I'm going, then it's difficult for me to find my way. So let's take, let's pause. We're going to get the map, the four points of today's lesson. Um, we're going to go, Abram becomes Abraham is section one. Then we've got this interesting little middle section before we get to Sarah, which is more signs of the covenant. Signs of the covenant. Then Sarai becomes Sarah. And then lastly, we close out with the angels. So entertaining angels. Entertaining angels. Okay, sorry. Let's stick here. We see that God has a new name. We have known God's name as Yahweh, but here we get God Almighty. That is El Shaddai. El Shaddai. El, we know, is God. If you see El, E-L, in pretty much any word, you are going to, you should perk up and know that that is God. So Bethel, the town, house of God. All right, that El, E-L. So El 
Shaddai is God Almighty. I bring this up because there are these little breadcrumb moments throughout this story that we can find that help us to understand that the people writing this story are not the people who are living this story. You will see in a second, the story refers to Isaac. And you should perk up and say, wait a minute, how do they know about Isaac yet? Not, Sarah's not even pregnant, and they're referencing Isaac in the story. That's because the people know the story, right? They know what's happening. They're writing their history, which means they're not including everything, and their writing history is almost this omniscient author, right? Remember back in school, we learned about different perspectives when authors write a novel or a story. This is, in essence, an omniscient perspective. They know what's going to happen. And so when they refer to the Lord, Yahweh, they're using the name they know, but they didn't get that name until Sinai. Then time when God reveals Yahweh to the people is when Moses is at Sinai. That is when they root themselves as a religious group. Right now, they're really just a cultural group, the Semitic peoples, the Israelites. Those people would not have used the term Yahweh. They would have used something like El Shaddai. That is how people would have referred to God, El, all over the Middle East. So Abraham, Abram, Abraham, would have understood that name, not Yahweh. And we get that little glimpse right there, which you might read. I find it interesting that the first time El Shaddai comes up is in chapter 17. We've seen Yahweh over and over and over again, but we've not seen El Shaddai yet when that's the name that they would have understood. So that indicates to us that either the writers didn't intend to ever even use El Shaddai, or maybe they decided to use it when Abraham came on the scene, we're not entirely sure. We just know that there's an interesting little moment here where a different name for God is used. I find it interesting, too, when it comes to names, that names matter to us in a very significant way. If I were to say to you, tell me the story of your name, that should open up all kinds of memories and stories for you. Whenever I'm with a new group of people, a small group of people, that's one of my favorite icebreakers, is everyone goes around and tells the story of one of their names, how they got it, who had it before them, where perhaps it is geographically rooted somewhere in the world, because that begins to explain to everyone else who we are. I just heard an NPR story. Um, are y'all familiar with the actress Reg Regina King? I think Regina King is fantastic. I didn't realize she has a sister and her name is Raina. And Regina and Raina both mean queen in Latin and Spanish. So her, their parents, like no pressure, named both <laughs> girls queen. And they wanted those girls to bear themselves in a particular way, right? To be proud of themselves and to uh, I guess, live honorably and with distinction like a queen. And I think that what we're seeing here with this, these name changes, especially with Sarah, which we'll get to in a minute, is God really giving them some new aspirational identity. Okay, any questions about this first section? 
All right, let's go ahead. Signs of the covenant. There are kind of, I'm going to talk about two signs of the covenant. If you look at verse eight, we'll see the first. God says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan, for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. First sign of the covenant is land. Land will matter. They are at present alien. It's, a, it's an interesting word to use here, right? That they are now aliens in this land. I believe we talked uh, briefly, but let me put a little more color on it. Abraham and Sarah travel with their family from Ur, which would be effectively Mesopotamia over in Eastern Iraq. North and west, they make a big horseshoe over into the land of Canaan, but people are already living there. And so they don't get the choice land. They don't get to live where there's easy water access or where the land is flat that allows crops to grow, grow well. People are already there. So instead, they go outside of the nice areas into the areas where no one else really wants to live, which is one of the reasons why Abraham becomes more of a herdsman than a farmer. There's not a lot you can do with rocky ground except maybe raise goats and sheep. And so he goes out there, becomes a herdsman, and he's living in an area that is quite difficult to live in, which makes them vulnerable to things like drought and famine. So when the drought comes, he and his family find that it's necessary to go to Egypt. And the reason they go to Egypt and the others may not go to Egypt who live in Canaan is because they're in a less difficult land area to live in. So Abraham is not in the choice land. So there's that. Also, Abraham is not from there. Now, when I moved to Alabama as a 20-something, I cannot tell you how many times someone said to me some version of, who are your people? <laughs> that matters. It matters in cultures where you know a lot of people. They want to place, they wanted to place me. And I wasn't just me, I was my people. So who are my people? And it was very obvious, not only because I didn't speak like I was from Alabama, but I didn't have people from Alabama. So what they did is they looked at me kind of nicely, right? I mean, they were, they were kind, but I was not from there. And it was apparent. And so there is a level of insecurity when you're not from where you live. It doesn't really matter wherever that is. So I would say for sure, Dallas is a whole lot less of that kind of place where like, who are your people? It, it counts. I mean, I have been in many conversations in this church where if you can claim that you're not first generation St. Michaelite, you, so, you what, get to count more? That's the truth, but that's probably not exactly what we would want to be. But that's the way that we tend to live. The longer you, are, you and your people are somewhere, the more secure you feel in that place. The deeper your roots go, the broader your safety net is. And so Abraham, God notes here that Abraham is relatively insecure as a newcomer to that land. 
And so the promise of being given that land, so the promise of being given the good part of that land and to have that land for a long, long time means that his security will go up and up. He will be, his descendants will be more and more secure as time goes on. That's a real kind of promise that we can all understand, not perhaps the way that he would understand it, but I think we all sort of get that. Any questions about that before we get to the second sign? You can tell me who your people are later. Okay. Verse 9. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised throughout, uh, skip to verse 12, throughout your generations. Every male among you shall be circumcised when he is eight days old, including the slave in your house and the one bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both the slave born in your house and the one with your money must be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The second sign of the covenant is male circumcision. So one caveat. We do not get differentiation here based on race, age, socioeconomic place, geography, culture, language, all that stuff. We do with gender. So it is not, it is just for me to note that this is a covenant born out through men, not women. So we'll just, that is noted, and we'll put that over there. This second sign of the covenant is an interesting one. Now, we can start reading this as God wanted his people to be marked in a particular way. However, I cannot agree that God genuinely cared about circumcision. Maybe. I seem to think that that's not a huge deal. But it is a huge deal for all of these grown men who are about to get circumcised. Um, but... <laughs> I would say that genu generally, how did this become a sign of the covenant? I want that to be our question, right? As critical readers, I don't want us to say, why did God want every, all the men circumcised? Because I think we can probably say that was probably not really God making that choice. But how did this become part of their identity? So remember, the Israelites are in exile. They were in Canaan in the promised land, and before that, they were enslaved in Egypt. While enslaved in Egypt, how could the Egyptians know who was Hebrew and who was Egyptian? This could be how. It is an ancient Middle Eastern practice to circumcise men. That would not have started with the Israelites. That was something that was very common in the Middle East for thousands and thousands of years, not in Africa. So as the Hebrew people go into Egypt and become slaves, that could have been a way to differentiate who was Egyptian 
and who was Hebrew, who was a slave and who was not. And it is not hard for us to potentially understand how being circumcised could become a sign of pride that they were not Egyptian. So it could go both ways. Egyptians could have liked it because they were able to distinguish who their slaves were. But on the flip side, the Hebrew people may have been very proud to not be Egyptian, that they would have sort of worn that in a sense as a badge of honor to make sure that they were differentiated from the Egyptian overlord. Does that kind of make sense? So fast forward, if that is a way that for hundreds of years, a culture has differentiated itself, doesn't it make sense that they would have at some point said, hey, why is it that we do this? You know, and then there would be stories told that the why is because of their faithfulness. Well, faithfulness, how? I mean, why does that mean faithfulness? Well, because God asked us to. See how that kind of worked? It is very likely that this became part of the story told around the Jewish people. So if they're going back and telling the story of Abraham, it, is, it bears less weight to say, well, Abraham was already part of this Middle Eastern culture. Instead, Abraham marks himself as different here. And all the other men under his umbrella, under his literal tent, are marked as different so that their faithfulness to God can be seen by anyone who cares to look, I guess is what I would say. Um, I mean, I, whenever I teach this to especially teenagers, the question that always comes up is, how would you know, right? Yeah, um, I think there is no, there is actually no good answer for that, except that if there was a moment at which people, the reason I personally like rooting this as a differentiating factor for the Israelites, the Hebrew people in Egypt, is because it does make sense that the Egyptians would want to differentiate themselves from the Hebrews, and this was a way to do so. And as Egyptians, as the slave owners, demanding proof of whether someone is a slave or not like that would make sense. I mean, that kind of physical mark is something that we see in cultures with slaves all over the world. It happens to be that this is a mark, but you can mark your slaves. People mark slaves in different ways in different cultures, but the common thread is that slaves are marked. It is difficult. You can't just say you're not a slave because you are physically branded in some way as being one. Does that make sense? That's kind of why I, I think that makes most sociological sense. And then, rather than it being a mark of servitude, it flips into a mark of pride, that it is their faithfulness, God's faithfulness to them and their faithfulness to God, that is why they maintain that mark. Okay, any questions about that before we shift? All right, next section. Sarai becomes Sarah. This name change is a little more interesting. 
Sarai, I'm sorry, let's read it first. Verse 15, still chapter 17, verse 15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So the interesting, interesting thing about this name change is Abram kind of meant something. Sarai with an I doesn't really. Sarah with an H, that word in Hebrew means queen. So now you have a real impactful name change. So Abraham goes from exalted father to father of lots of people. Okay, that's good. That's a good shift. Sarah goes from eh to queen. That's a good shift. That's much better. And in order to reiterate that the intention of that shift is to a name that means queen, the scripture literally says, kings of peoples shall come from her. Okay, who bears kings? Queens. So Sarah now gets this very exalted identity. She is no longer just Abraham's wife. And we saw in those stories, like when they go to Egypt, that she was, poor thing, just tossed around as almost this social shield for Abraham. Not anymore. Well, actually, that'll happen again. But Sarah, at least in this moment, gets a little special thing where she becomes the queen. In this name shift section, we do get a dark moment. In verse 18, Abraham's response to receiving the promise that Sarah would bear a son is telling. Abraham said to God, verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. So put yourself in Abraham's position here. Abraham, I think we can say, is, is at minimum respectful and loyal to Sarah. I'd love to say Abraham loves Sarah, but love in a marriage is a modern thing. We can at least say he was loyal. Sarah could not bear a child, and so Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham. And if we remember from a couple weeks ago, Hagar gets pregnant. Hagar feels very full of herself, and Sarah begins to feel the judgment from Hagar. Sarah gets mad, goes to Abraham and says, excuse me, look what you did. And Abraham's like, well, you told me to. And so he says, Sarah, you're wife number one. You deal with those other women as you see fit. And so Sarah begins to mistreat Hagar. Hagar runs away. Angel of the Lord finds Hagar and says, go back. It will be okay. Fast forward now over a decade. Hagar's been living there with Sarah. I cannot imagine that life has gotten really good between Hagar and Sarah. It's probably gotten sustainable, right? I mean, it's probably one of those, we just, let's not see each other, right? And you just stay over there and I'll stay over here. We'll be okay, right? But not for Ishmael. It would be very normal for a son to be taught by his father. And remember, we cannot put our modern construct on this. Ishmael is Abraham's son, period. It doesn't matter. 
if he's Hagar's son or Sarah's son, he is Abraham's. And so in that culture, he's 100% the heir. So Abraham would have spent now over a decade raising up his son, teaching him what he knows, training him to do his job, making sure that he is ready to take over the family business when Abraham dies. Now, over a decade later, we find out in a second, Ishmael's 13. 13 years of this, and you all know if you've raised children, that's about the time your children start to become real people. And they begin to become kind of like little adults. They've got independent ideas. They've got independent interests. They're really sort of becoming them. And even if they are profoundly frustrating, it's still fascinating to watch that happen. Ishmael, in any way, in a complex way, like any parent, loves his son. If Sarah has a son, he immediately thinks that this could spell disaster for Ishmael. Why? Because Sarah probably still hates Hagar. And Abraham's not stupid. He knows. If Sarah has a son, then Hagar is likely not going to be protected anymore. And if Hagar's not protected, Ishmael's not protected. And that, Abraham immediately jumps to the person that he's probably closest to, which is Ishmael. And so in that moment, Abraham really says to God, what about my son? And so it's important for us to note that there is a complex family dynamic happening here under the surface that is obviously not really the writer's purview. They don't really flesh this out. But if we take that one line and we say, why would Abraham respond that way? Because we naturally think Abraham and Sarah would be so excited to have a son, right? Sarah is Abraham's wife. Hmm. It's much more complicated than that because it isn't just our modern sensibilities put on top of this story. It is more complex. So skip ahead to verse 20. And God responds to Abraham. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will bless him and make him fruitful and exceedingly numerous. He shall be the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this season next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. There is a promise here made to Abraham about Ishmael. And it's interesting because it's almost, reluctant is not the right word. It's almost because of Abraham that God makes this promise. God came down and said, I've got a purpose and it will be fulfilled by your son Isaac. And Abraham out of love says, but what about Ishmael? And God says, you know what? Ishmael's gonna be blessed too. Ishmael not be blessed in this way, but Ishmael will also be blessed in a meaningful way. Obviously, we know who is writing this story. So even though the story is preferential to Isaac, they can't help but include this good word for Ishmael, that Ishmael is blessed by God, not just 
alive, and so he matters. No, better than that. Ishmael receives God's blessing and promise. God makes a promise that Ishmael will be the father of a great nation. And that's, I think, is important for us as Christian people to note, because that's not a small thing. Okay. And then finally, before we get to chapter 8, Abraham, Ishmael, and all the men of their household go out to be circumcised together. Okay. Any questions? Any questions about that before we move on to chapter 18? Yes. That is a really good note. So what she said is, if you look back when Hagar runs away and the angel appears to Hagar, the description of Ishmael is not, in your words, really blessing, right? How many of you think your children are a blessing? I guess no judgment if you don't raise your hand. Okay. Um, How many of you would have described your children all along the way in blessing words? I mean, maybe some of you just had the most excellent, wonderful children. But I think everyone understands that we are complex, right? None of us are all good. None of us are all bad. The great story of salvation is about redemption always. And especially for, I would say, especially for church people. And I would say Episcopalians tend to be a distillation of church people. One of the things that we kind of naturally struggle with is being comfortable with messy, where we can actually admit and own and redeem what about us is is mess, because we try not to be messy. And in a sense, we've almost been taught that we can overcome the mess. That's really the goal. The goal really is perfection. And this is not a a truly modern idea. If we even go back to Methodism, Right, the Methodist Church roots itself in the Wesley brothers, and those Wesley brothers were Anglican priests. And one of the things that caused them to split from what was the Church of England is their idea that we could be perfected. And Anglican theology said, no, that's actually not the point. I mean, A, all things are possible with God. Okay, yes. But perfection, that is not attainable here. We are made perfect in eternal life through Christ, yes. That's not right now on the earth. The earth is imperfect, so we are imperfect here too. And the Wesleys broke, and in fact, some Methodist liturgies at your confirmation, you pledge to work toward perfection. When any Methodist person is ordained, they absolutely pledge to work toward perfection. That in itself is an idea that does not make sense in our tradition. We don't say that. We don't believe it. We are much more comfortable with, we've got all of the complexity in us. And so the way I read that moment where the angel's speaking about Ishmael is just honest. It's not not a blessing. I think we can read that passage and be challenged to open up and expand what we actually think blessing is. 
Because blessing can come in the form of deep pain. Blessing does not always come in the form of happiness. It can, but if we put blessing as happy and positive, we're missing out on what I would say is most blessing and the richness and complexity of God's own love for us. It tees us up for something that is, I think, dangerous. We should be more comfortable with the fact that we're blessed and messy, and that's okay. Does that sound okay? Oh, and the angel didn't say those words, by the way. That's the storyteller's version of what the angel said. So again, kind of keep that loop in our mind too. Any other questions? Okay, last section. I am going to end on time. It's great. Chapter 8. Let's jump to verse 2 of chapter 8. It is 18. You're right. I wrote 8. <laughs> I was really just making sure you're paying attention. Okay. 18. Chapter 18, verse 2. Abraham looked up. Oh, I'm sorry. Here's the setting. Abraham's hanging out at home. Okay. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, my Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it, and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. This passage for us might seem a little strange at first, but let me put it into context. In the Middle Eastern culture, hospitality defines your humanity. You are not valuable if you are not hospitable. You may, I, I don't know if I've said this in here recently, my father is Lebanese. His parents are immigrants. And in that side of our family, you go see each other at your homes anytime. Like people just draw by all the time. I'll never forget my mom when she first married into the family said, we would have to stay dressed until we basically went to bed because anyone could come over at any time, right? Um, and there is, there is a sense that your home is open to anyone anytime. And when someone comes in, they don't stand in the doorway. No, 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 no. They come in and they sit down and they eat some food and they have a conversation. They have a real visit. There is no quickie quickie at the door, especially if they are strangers. Now in America, you don't really get strangers knocking on your door, but actually in the Middle East, and especially before you had anything like hotels or inns or something like that concept, the only way someone traveling could really make it, unless you were seriously wealthy, 
The only way you could make it when you travel is by depending on strangers. You would literally walk through the desert all day, get somewhere, see a tent and a candle, and walk over and ask if you could just sleep with them, right? Imagine the area. You've got wild animals that prowl at night. You are not able to grow food on the fly, and it's difficult to preserve food long enough to sustain you over days and days and days of a trip. And so there was a hospitality culture developed where if you need something, someone gives it to you, period. No questions asked. It doesn't matter who you are. And the stranger, the less known you are, the more hospitable you are to be. So strangers come by your tent, you really are supposed to give more than you would give even your friend who lives next door. However, this story, even within that context, is extravagant. Anyone who reads this story would have read, this goes way above and beyond expected hospitality. Killing the fatted calf is extreme. Now let me ask you, where else does killing the fatted calf come into play as extreme? The prodigal son. Do you not think that every person who heard Jesus tell that story thought of this? That's not an accident. These stories repeat themselves to magnify their meaning. Abraham here is almost tripping over himself physically, running around, trying to get this big feast together for these three strangers who shows up at his tent just because he is that hospitable. That's the point of the story at this, at this moment. That sort of silliness of running around is meant to display Abraham's extreme hospitality. And we kind of get this, right? Eh. I mean, I would say in Texas, this is, this is sort of a thing for some people, maybe not for all people. Um, but you definitely see that in the South, where there's this sense of what happens when anything bad happens to anybody? You take food, right? Can you, I cannot, it is, it is physically hard for me to show up at a party without a thing, right? I got to bring a gift of some kind. And even when people say really, really don't, it's like, oh, I walk out of the house and I'm like, what? don't take the wine, don't take the wine. Oh, I have to take the wine. I mean, you just, you have to, I, it's in me. You cannot show up empty handed and you certainly can't. It bugs me to see people standing at our doorway. You know, I, even if they want to make a quick trip, I really would like you to come in and do, no, most people don't want to do that because they just don't, don't want to impose. But it is like in my soul that you are not supposed to just come to the door, you come in. And so we get this, and this is just an extreme version of it. All right, so let's jump ahead. Verse nine. The three men said to Abraham, where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, and it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. <laughs> that, is, that is the best euphemistic line I have ever heard like in the Bible. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? Okay. This time, when Abraham hears the promise of Sarah getting pregnant, 
Sarah hears it too, right? The first time, Sarah's not there. This time, the promise is still made to Abraham, but Sarah is within earshot and hears it, and she laughed. I love this moment and this story because it's so human, right? What do we know of Sarah? Sarah was lied about in Egypt as being Abram's sister, went into Pharaoh's harem dutifully, right? We could read that as weakness, except fast forward, when Hagar gets pregnant, Sarah gets mad. And Sarah didn't like this woman getting pregnant because she couldn't get pregnant. And she ends up being so mean to Hagar that Hagar runs away. So now we've got this story of Sarah's submission to help save Abram and the story of Sarah's anger about and jealousy, really, about Hagar getting pregnant. Now the form of Sarah is expanding. And I kind of like her, right? So now we get Sarah's at the tent. She hears God or she hears these men promise she's going to get pregnant and she's old and she just laughs. Sarah now is becoming a three-dimensional character. That initial potential submission and weakness in Egypt, I don't think so. I think Sarah did that because Sarah was strong enough to do it. And now these men come in and she laughs out loud that it's even possible. Can you imagine what Sarah must have thought? We are told that Sarah is old, that Sarah is, in a very polite language, not physically able to get pregnant anymore. That time has passed. And she has been promised this for some time, and it has not happened. Look at verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, <laughs> I love this. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I'll return to you in due season, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, oh, yes, you did. <laughs> um, <laughs> so funny. So a note, if you're looking at this story and you think, I'm sorry, Who's talking and who's saying what about who? Yeah. So this is one of those, any English teacher would freak over this kind of storytelling. Because you have three men, then you've got God, and then a man, and then the Lord, and then it's totally confusing. Just let it, let it go. Because it is, it is meant, <laughs> it's almost as if the storyteller was using these three men as a stand-in for God and forgot that the men were supposed to be stand-ins for God, so wrote that God said it. And you're thinking, well, yeah, I mean, we got it. We got the image that these men are God. We understand. But then they slip it in. So anyway, um, that's why the story has typically been summarized as these men were angels. So speaking on behalf of God rather than God speaking in third person, which is strange. So anyway, let's just say God's message is being born by these three people. After Sarah laughs, it gets pretty serious. I think the most telling moment of this whole story is at the very end when Sarah denies laughing. Why? For she was afraid. 
don't pass over that. Sarah's fear is real. I think that the way we often tell the story is something like this. Sarah couldn't get pregnant, or Sarah and Abraham couldn't get pregnant. God made a promise they would have a son. Then she got pregnant and they had one. Yay! If a young woman or a young couple has been trying to get pregnant for a few years and they finally do, that is absolutely a celebration. If someone has tried to get pregnant and they couldn't, then they go through menopause, then it's 30 years later, getting pregnant is frightening. Let's talk about physically, that is absolutely frightening, right? I mean, I think I said this last week or two weeks ago when I said that the friend of mine who was 36 or seven when she got pregnant for the first time was had a geriatric pregnancy. Okay, she was not 90. Okay, so physically speaking, that kind of pregnancy is a serious danger to Sarah's health, right? I mean, that would scare her to death. And how about just logistically? It's not just about birthing the child, you need to raise the child. So the older you are, the harder it is to raise a child, the less secure you will be knowing or assuming you'll live long enough to raise the child. All of those things go through Sarah's mind, right? These people say Sarah's gonna be pregnant. She's like, yeah, right. And then they said, oh yeah, why'd you laugh? And she went, oh, oh, um, you know, oh, is, that, is this real? Is that real? And then I can see Sarah going, oh my God, wait a minute. You know, so there's, there's this moment of please, and then it's like some light bulb goes on and she realizes, I, I, I think this is scary. Pregnancy as being scary is a theme in scripture over and over and over. And of course we know this story with Mary, right? We're about to hear this again. Mary, it's almost the opposite scary. Mary is too young, too unmarried, and sees that this could be a literal threat to her life. Same with Sarah. This could literally kill her because she is not supposed to be doing this at her age. And she is scared. And God says, this is for my purpose. And to me, there is something very profound in that moment because it is very unusual for us to do anything that is part of God's purpose that isn't kind of scary, right? Maybe occasionally we get to do something that is divinely purposeful that isn't scary, but in my experience, when you're really doing it, when you're really faithful to God and you are really living into what God's calling you to do, it is absolutely terrifying. And God's with you, with us, just like God was with Sarah. And for me, that is perhaps the best way to end an Advent Bible study as we look forward to Christmas. So we are over time. I apologize for that. But if you've got questions, leave them on the cards. And if not, I will see you all January 8th. Have a very Merry Christmas.